0: You have your Bible this morning. Turn with me to Mark chapter six. We'll be looking at verses forty-five to fifty-two, which, of course, is unbreakably linked to last week's passage, as we'll see, as it begins with uh, Jesus in the feeding of the five thousand. And if you think in terms of the the last two songs that we just sang and their focus on the glory and the majesty and the impressiveness of Jesus, well that's what last week's paragraph and that's what this week's paragraph is clearly designed by Mark to do. So Mark writes what he writes in these two little stories so that we are moved to have the sorts of attitudes and thinking about Jesus that are reflected in those last two songs that we just sang. That's precisely what Mark is aiming for, is that we will see... The claim that he's making about just how majestic and just who Jesus is. And hence, as I warned you we were going to do last week, is we have the same sermon title for this week as for last week. Do we know Jesus? Do we know the Jesus that we were just singing about? Do we know the Jesus of Mark? 6, 45 to 52. Let's stand together and we'll read those words. Speaking of Jesus, verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Well, he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, He went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And he meant or he desired to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. You could translate that as we'll know. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves. For their heart was hardened. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we do ask you, along with the psalmist, to hear our prayer, O Lord, to give ear to our supplications. and in the midst of your faithfulness to answer us and to deal with us in accordance with your righteousness. Lord, we don't want you to deal with us according to what we deserve for no life could be found righteous before you if that life were simply dealt with based on what was deserved, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Lord, because we live in this fallen world, where no one deserves approval, we are in desperate need of a Savior, and we are also often in the sights of trouble and tribulation. And we find ourselves with enemies, with trials, with broken relationships, with broken hearts. Father, we pray that you would come And that you would enable us to persevere in following after you. That we would not grow weary and faint, but be persevering and strong. Lord, make haste and answer us in our need. And bring our spirits and our souls into rest in you. Lord, we come to you in the midst of personal challenges, in the midst of political instability all around the world, wars and conflicts, and as the New Testament says, rumors of wars. And we call out to you day by day, morning by morning, evening by evening, and ask that you would hear us from the standpoint of your steadfast love as we seek to trust in you. Make known to us the way that we should go when we are confused and tried and discouraged We lift up our souls to you and ask for your leading and your guidance. And we take courage in the fact that you assure us that if we do know you through Jesus Christ, we are indeed your servants. We are indeed your children. We are indeed your people. Come and enable us to hear your voice as to the centrality and the importance of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we know him, walk with him as your servants, as your children, and as your people. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. you seated. I haven't seen it as much as you used to see it. Uh, used to see someone, they would position themselves somewhere behind home plate in a major league baseball stadium, knowing that they're in the line where the favorite camera angle comes to follow the pitch in, so you can sort of see whether it was high or low or inside or outside. and uh, And then this this person would hold up a, a little sign that just said John 3.16 on it. There they'd be. They'd show up, and they'd time they'd see the guy get ready to throw, they know the camera's got to be following the ball right now. They hold up the sign, and, uh, and the pitch goes. I haven't seen them uh, for a while, so I don't know whether they have uh, uh, cleared that kind of thing out and don't let that happen anymore or, or not. But if there was baseball in ancient Israel, If there had been baseball in ancient Israel, um, what would have been written on that sign almost certainly would have been Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following. That's what they'd have held up to let everybody know uh, what they considered to be the most important piece of theological truth that everyone needed to consider and confront and take to heart. And it read like this, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Now, Jesus has a, a text like that in mind when he prays what he prays in what we refer to as his high priestly prayer in John seventeen three, when he says, and this is eternal life that you will know, that they will know you, the only true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord. The Lord is one. This is eternal life, that they will know you. The only true God. The Lord who is one. Similarly, Paul, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Right into the Corinthians, he says, Yet there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So is there one God or two? Remember how John wrote of it in the opening lines of his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, God is one, so which is it, John? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, so distinguishable from God. The word was God, indistinguishable from God. So what's going on? What's going on? Well, Mark is touching on these very same questions in the way that he's been telling us about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Telling us about Jesus walking out to this boat upon the sea. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite uh, theological uh, writers, uh, for mostly personal uh, reasons, wrote in his little book uh, "Concise Theology" on chapter on the incarnation. The Incarnation declares that the divine Jesus is truly human. They proclaim the full reality of the Savior in the New Testament who sets forth the Son who came from the Father's side at the Father's will to become the sinner's substitute. But then in that same article, just about an inch down, Thus, there is one God, not two. The distinction between the Father and the Son is within the divine unity. The Son is God in the same sense that the Father is. I said, Well, you feel like you weaving theological knots when you start to talk about this well you, that's, that's, that's a, there's a good reason for that good reason for that it's a tremendously difficult concept to grasp but it's not hard to see that the New Testament especially in the Bible as a whole teaches the idea that Packer's wrestling with there that John's wrestling with with John chapter 1 that Jesus is wrestling with when he prays his prayer And as I say, we've seen it in our story for last week, and we'll see it even more clearly, I think, in our story for this week. I'll say our thesis this way. We are to experience the comforting glory of Jesus. We are to experience the comforting glory of Jesus. Do we know Jesus? Well, if we do, we ought to find ourselves regularly experiencing the comforting glory of Jesus. For that's the design of the Spirit in what he's given us in the New Testament. We'll make just three observations from our text for this morning. Number one, Jesus would encourage us to pray. Jesus would encourage us to pray. Do we know Jesus? Do we know Jesus as the perfect man? For that is what he is. He's more than that, but he's not less than that. Do we know Jesus as the perfect man? This is the picture that Mark has been painting, both last week's text and our text uh, for this morning. Um, Peter uh, wrote of it this way in First Peter two twenty one, that Jesus has left you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. Immediately he went up with his disciples to get to put them in the boat and to go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, and well he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. Remember, the original goal of this day had been to get alone with the disciples, and they got in the boat, and they went to the other side, but the crowd had anticipated them and actually beat them there, and so by the time they get there, there's already a crowd And they actually spend the day with Jesus teaching all day and then overseeing the feeding of 5,000 men at least with the disciples' help. And it's at the close of this day that he went up on the mountain to pray. It's evening. When evening came, the boat was out in the sea, and he was alone on the land praying. If you want to know how Jesus thought about prayer, just read the Psalms. That's how he thought about prayer. Uh, Probably had all the Psalms memorized. We find him praying the Psalms. He's praying the Psalms from the cross. So if you want to know how Jesus thought about prayer, read the Psalms. The Psalms will tell you how he thought about prayer and how he practiced prayer, at least to a large degree. Psalm 10, 17, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ears. God actually listens to human beings speak to him according to the psalms psalm 17:6 following i call upon you for you will answer me o god incline your ear hear my words wondrously show your steadfast love o savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand, and keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Earlier in this gospel, you remember, the morning after he had healed Peter's mother-in-law, by the time a crowd comes for healing the next morning, we're told Jesus is long gone. Peter can't find him and goes out looking for him. And Mark had told us what happened this way. Mark 1.35 And rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. So Mark presents us a Jesus who starts the day with prayer. He ends the day with prayer. The ideal man is a person of prayer. When we say each week we are becoming disciples, that necessarily heavily implies a whole bunch of things, but among them, among the more central things it implies is we are becoming people of prayer. For Jesus would model for us and did model for us a prayerful life. Jesus as the ultimate man. Jesus as the ultimate example. More than that, but not less. Secondly, Jesus would encourage us to rest in his glorious presence. This is the heart of the present paragraph. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him, and they were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Or take heart, I am. Now that business about the fourth watch of the night—it's uh, the ancient world. They thought about nighttime pretty much exactly like we do, right? So when, when, does, when does the night begin? Well, at six o'clock. Twelve hours. It's now evening. We quit saying this afternoon. You know, at five fifty-nine. And then at 6 o'clock, you start saying, this evening. That's exactly what they did. And they thought about the evening as a full 12 hours long. So there's four watches to the night. The first watch, 6 to 9. Second watch, 9 to midnight. Third watch, midnight to 3. Fourth watch, 3 to 6 which tells you that this is almost something of an understatement Uh, because certainly it was not later than nine o'clock when Jesus helped them get in the boat and now it's at least six hours later and they are rowing against the wind out in the sea and he can see them out there still from where he is. If you take it as a it's a participle. They were struggling or to take it passively they were being tormented. Um, Both would be completely appropriate. They were struggling against the wind. They were being tormented by the wind. Wind can, wind can be an just almost an inexhaustible force, right? Uh, our own Pete Hansen sits down right over here. He's, he does lots of really ridiculous things on a bicycle. Um, and I think Joe's here this morning, too. He does ridiculous things on a bicycle as well. But but Pete's the one who's told me about it. Being on a ride across the state of South Dakota and driving into a wind so strong that when you're on a steep hill, on a steep hill going down, if you stop pedaling, the wind will stop you. Whew, that's wind. You're pedaling against that wind, that's struggling, that's torment. You're out in the sea with now and out in the sea of course the wind even picks the waves up, so you got a double problem. You can't get anywhere, and the boat's flying around in the waves. And it's somewhere past three o'clock in the morning. Now this is where this is where the commentators part ways, and I really I don't really understand it this time because I I, I know which side the angels are on. This one, often with the comment, I don't know which side to go either. But this time, I really, I I know right where, you know, uh, Gabriel and uh, Michael and and Mark are. uh, And I don't know why the the rest of the commentators don't uh, see it um, clearly. So Jesus comes... To them walking on the water. Now we noted last week and I, and I don't think it, it really can't be argued right everybody all those who really really study Mark's gospel will tell you these two things about about what Mark does. Mark as he writes about Jesus, always has the book of Exodus in the back of his mind but, generally not Exodus as it stands written there in Exodus, but Exodus as it's been touched on by the prophet Isaiah. So Mark thinks about the kind of images that Isaiah thought about when he thought about Exodus. But they're both thinking about Exodus. It's clear. They're both thinking about exactly the same sequence of stories. And so when you find, as we did last week, Jesus feeding 5,000 men with a boy's lunch. That seems a lot like God feeding the nation of Israel in the desert, right? So that's an Exodus connection, pretty clearly. Another Exodus connection would be God in water. God Parts the sea, the Red Sea, for the children of Israel to pass over. Now Isaiah, Isaiah thinking about that and writing about that in Isaiah forty three sixteen writes of it this way. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, If you're thinking Exodus, context is king. If you're thinking Exodus, here comes Jesus. What's he doing? Well, it's as if he's walking on a path out to the boat. Here he comes. He's walking on a path out to the boat. He's making a path through the waters Um, and if you're as acquainted with the prophets and the law as you should have been as an Israelite you might think about this kind of connection there he is what's going on here what does this mean He's walking as if on a path through the water. Something that God did in the Old Testament. Dividing the sea. But here's where the the commentators now disagree. About what Mark has in mind. When he talks about... Jesus desiring to pass them by. It's verse 48. And seeing them being tormented while they rode, for the wind was contrary to them, around the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, he came to them, walking upon the sea, and he desired to pass them by, to pass by them. Now, there's, there's basically two ways you can take that. There's, and there's a third option, too. Uh, the third option is the commentator say, I have no idea what any of that's about. So I'm not, I'm not going to even try to solve it. Um, but the other thing is to say that, that you have to take it something like this. So Jesus had no intention, really, of going out there to help them. He meant to sneak around them. He meant to sneak around them. But he sort of miscalculated, apparently, and got too close to the boat, and they saw him. And they cry out, and now they're in all kinds of distress, and so now he goes to the boat, which he didn't really plan to do. But now he, now he has to, and he goes to the boat, and that's the story. I don't think so. I don't think so. I am, I would, I'm not a gambler, but I would bet. <laughs> if I were, if I were that you're supposed to still be thinking Exodus here. And in Exodus 33, as was already read by the worship team this morning, but I'm going to reread it. Here's what it says. Exodus 33:17. 17, And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name, Moses said. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will make all my goodness pass by you. I will make all my goodness pass by you. He goes on. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For the man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you can stand in the rock. And then here's the little phrase again. And well my glory passes by. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And then the fulfillment comes in the next chapter, chapter 34 and verse 6. And the Lord passed by. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord, the Lord. The name that he introduced Moses to back in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh. I am who I am. as translated in the Septuagint. I am the one who is. I am the one who is. Mark is saying this. And Jesus came out with them in their trouble. Like God with Moses in the book of Exodus. To cause his glory to pass by them. To show them. God walking on a path through the sea. They see him. They're frightened. And Jesus says, take courage. I am. I am. Fear not. I am. It's the Septuagint would have rendered it. I am the one who is. I am Yahweh. I am the God of the Hebrew Bible. I am God. I feed people in the wilderness like Yahweh. I handle seas like Yahweh. Merciful, gracious, steadfast love. Yahweh. I am. I am. And he says this to them when they're out in the midst of the sea in the middle of the night, struggling, being tormented. That's when we most need to know who Jesus is, when we find ourselves struggling, being tormented. Often it's hard to tell which one is the more appropriate way to describe our experience, isn't it? Am I just struggling or am I being tormented? I can't really tell. I know this much. It's a mess. I wish it wasn't like this. I wish it wasn't like this. But it is. But it is. It is. And what a thing to be able to turn and to see Jesus. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. And he causes us to see how glorious he is. He can do anything that he wants in whatever our situation may be. God he can do anything he can he can and we need to know it and Mark is writing this to sort of let the glory of Jesus pass by us so that we'll see it thirdly Jesus would encourage us to be wary of hard-heartedness. Jesus would encourage us to be wary of hard-heartedness. When you read these accounts in Matthew and Mark, um, I'm instantly suspicious that Mark must have some Scandinavian descent. He's so much more negative than Matthew at the end of this story. Um, um, Here's how Mark wraps it up. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded And then here's what Mark says about the disciples. They didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were having been hardened. That's why they didn't understand. They're hard-hearted, and therefore relatively blind. Now here's how Matthew ends the same story. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And then they went and lived happily ever after. <laughs> like, wow, what's wrong with Mark? What's wrong with Mark? You've got to bring in hard hearts. What's he talking about? Well, they were impressed. They were impressed. They did worship him. But there's worship and there's worship. There's worship and then there's worship that has a much deeper, fuller understanding. We're always trying to get to that second one. And Mark's telling us well, they weren't there. They weren't there. And the rest of Mark's gospel is going to make that plain over and over again. The disciples are pretty disappointing from here on in Mark's gospel. They are not the all star team, they are not the dream team. Um, they're just not in Mark. Uh, and really, from this point on, they're not the dream team. Uh, they're real, they're disciples, uh, they're growing. Uh, But they are not the dream team. Joel Williams in his commentary on Mark wrote this about his comment here in verse 52. The point is not that the disciples failed to make sense of the loaves. That is, the point isn't they didn't really realize that Jesus fed 5,000 men with a boy's lunch. They knew that. They got that part They knew that. They were impressed with that. They didn't really believe that Jesus walked on the water. No, they knew that. They saw that part. They believed that. But they didn't really get what it meant. They didn't really see how wonderful... It is. How confident they ought to be. How grand Jesus actually is. Why not? Because their hearts were hardened. By what? (laughs) By living in the Roman Empire. By, by by growing up with all kinds of disputes about from the pharisees and the herodians and the zealots and this group and that group all within the context of the roman empire influence influence disciple 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 by these mighty forces like us like us Influenced by voices from every conceivable direction, making it very hard for us to actually live out a New Testament point of view. A Jesus-glorifying, Jesus-trusting, Jesus-magnifying view of things. because we wrestle with hearts that have been hardened by where we live and by our education and by what we read and by what we see and by testimonies all around us and a thousand things. And they were against that too. They were up against that. And Mark just says, oh yeah, they saw it. They understood the story. They they could they could retell the story. You can retell the story. Do you believe Jesus fed five thousand men? Oh yes. Do you believe he walked on the water? Oh yes. You got a glorious view of Jesus? Oh yes, I must have. I believe those two things, but do you? But do you? Do you really find the ability? When you are struggling and being tormented, can you respond instantly to Jesus when he says, take courage, fear not? Do you just instantly calm? Or something a little different than that? Yes. Yes something a little different than that much of the time. But we're trying to get here. It's Mark's telling us. This is why, back to the Psalms and then we're done. This is why you read a story like this, you come to a service like this. I I mentioned it last week. I'll mention it again. It's my, become one of my uh, Psalm 119, uh, greatest hits, verse 34. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. As I've mentioned many times before, that's a, that's a hit in the Hebrew. Cause me to understand. That's what you pray. Lord, when I open up my Bible... Cause me to really understand what I read. Cause me to be enabled to take the truth, your truth, to heart. So that I won't end up living a life that really looks, in no fundamental way, any different than those that get their fundamental worldview from PBS. I want to be distinguishable from them. I don't want to look just like them. I don't want to respond to the adversities and the trials and the hopes of life just like them. I don't want to be like that. And if I'm to be any different, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to cause me to understand in order that I may keep your instruction and observe it with my whole heart. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, enable us to hear your voice, to see the truth, to live to live, as we've already sung, on your glory, on the promise that your glory lasts forever. May we be deeply, richly, fully taken with the importance and the power and the majesty of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may his glory shine upon us and shape us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.